This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute, and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. And then for me, sometimes I'll get into, you know, higher level concepts like do they understand this real world system and can they use that to map this new programming concept into their brain? Welcome to Dev Discuss, the show where we cover the burning topics that impact all our lives as developers. I'm Ben Halpern, a co-founder of Dev. And I'm Jess Lee, also a co-founder of Dev. Today we're talking about analogies and visualizations with Lydia Halley, software engineer contractor at La Avocoder, and Kevin Kononenko, product manager at Tulip Interfaces and creator of the Code Analogies blog. Thank you both so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for the intro, Jess. Thank you. All right, let's get started. Lydia, can you tell us a little bit about your background? I started my software developer career when I was around 19, and I shared it on social media to kind of get friends and get people more excited about tech in general. And currently, I've just been coding kind of nonstop for like four years now, and I've kind of shifted more into technical writing lately, which has also been really, really fun, especially on Dev2. Can you tell us about the Avocoder and a bit about your role there? (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, the Avocoder is more of a name that I have on like social media. It started as a bad joke between me and my sister. But yeah, currently, (laughs) I am a software contractor independent for like startups, mainly like using JavaScript, serverless, all kind of the cutting edge technology to learn more every day. What are some of the projects you've been working on recently? Currently, I'm working for this startup called MemberStack. It's kind of in the no-code space, which is totally new to me. So I'm working with like these website builders like Webflow and Squarespace. And uh, we're allowing like memberships and payments to happen on those websites. It's been really fun and a totally new landscape in the tech world. It's very exciting. I love it. Kevin, how about yourself? Yeah, so this is this is going to be fun because I have like a little bit of an opposite background of Lydia, but then we have a, a few overlaps as well. So (laughs) I went to school at the University of Michigan and started teaching myself web development towards my senior year. I was doing a startup with a technical partner. And as it goes for many people with their first startup, especially when it's out of school, it didn't go great. And what ended up happening is we scoped out a huge product and then we just realized it was going to take forever for one person to build. And rather than solving that by scoping down the product, we decided that I would learn web development. So I started uh, teaching myself front end at first. I was doing HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and D3 because we had a lot of visualization in our product. That went pretty well. And then I started getting involved in the back end as well. And you know, my learning experience was more nights and weekends because during the day, I was the business end of the company. So I would do, you know, marketing and any organization you would expect the business lead to do. And then at night, it would be go home, sit down at my computer until I fell asleep and just, you know, learn whatever web development topics I could. And then, you know, start again the next day, run it by my partner and kind of ask questions that I had and and do it again. Wow. Sounds like totally around the clock. And I like that, like what you were doing at the time was also kind of like your side project, like your nights and evening side project. So Tell us about Tulip Interfaces and what your role is there. Yeah, so I'm a product manager at Tulip, 
and we are actually a no-code application building platform. Basically, we work with manufacturing usually, and in manufacturing, there are a lot of complicated procedures that are going on in the real world out on the shop floor. And what our tool allows you to do is build these applications that would live on a person's phone or at the workstation of an operator who's doing work with their hands all day. And so there's really three parts to the system. There's All of it is organized through our no-code app builder, but there's kind of like the tablet-based interface that's an Electron app. And then we also have a IoT gateway, so you can use inputs coming off of devices from real-world things that people are using at their workstation. And then we also have a computer vision product that can run on a high-resolution webcam and essentially give people real-time feedback depending on what they're doing with their hands. And the cool part about the product is that all of this logic is written in kind of like a no-code interface that you might see from Zapier or Airtable. I don't have a technical role in the sense that I'm not an engineer on the team, but I'm a product manager on the app building product itself. So I get to work with no-code interfaces a lot and, and think about how to design those. Circling back to your origin story in software development, that seems like a really good way to learn a lot really quickly when you sort of force yourself into that situation. How did the project wind up going? You said it was sprawling in scope. How, how did that turn out in the end, besides all the stuff you learned? Well, we did end up building a product that we were proud of and that we could launch. So that was a success. It probably took you know, the first 12 months when we were hoping it would take the first three months. So that in terms of how much time and energy you're willing to put into the project that burned us out a little bit of just spending all that time just to release the first version. But we at least felt proud of ourselves that we were able to get that out. Didn't really take off in any way. We ended up with a couple hundred users. But from that point forward, my web development journey had started. I was definitely a beginner at that point. And then in the following nine months, when I was kind of like unsure if I was going to continue working on that startup or join another one, I had spent a lot of the day learning more web development just because I knew it was a, a valuable skill that I would take into the future. And that's also when I started Code Analogies because I wasn't sure if the company, it was called Vivergy, was going to take off. But I knew I was learning something valuable in the moment and I could turn that into a resource for other people. Awesome segue. So, you know, we brought you both here to talk about using analogies and visualizations to better teach and explain coding concepts. And Lydia, let's start with you. You've written so many great posts on dev about different visualizations you've made. Can you talk about what inspired you to start sharing these visualizations? Personally, I think tech is amazing. But I see every day that so many people feel so overwhelmed by like all these technical concepts that they feel that they should understand. But it's always kind of and I also like talk from personal experience. I felt like I had to know so many things, but I couldn't really grasp it. It felt very overwhelming and vague. And then I started to like study it more and more into a lot of depth. But when I learn something, I always just visualize it for myself because for some reason I can just remember it way better when I'm kind of drawing it out in a very detailed way, not like cartoons. That just doesn't really like do it for me. And then I just started doing it in Keynote. And I think because I'm very active on Instagram, I shared it in my stories once. And people were like, whoa, this is amazing. Like, can you share this? This is very useful. And suddenly I was like, wait a second. I should just write a blog post where I can just have all these animated kind of videos and GIFs that hopefully people like find useful to kind of understand these concepts a bit better. And apparently worked. So I'm very happy about that. <laughs> well, we are very thankful that you chose 
the format that you did, of course, you know, we love when people post awesome stuff on dev, but just as users, it's really awesome that this stuff continues to be discoverable. I feel like a lot of people when they're doing visual stuff and they're trying to share maybe on Instagram, it's it's nice to do at first, but it's so ephemeral and so like not baked into the rest of the ecosystem that yeah. it's really awesome that you uh, took the step to put it in a place that's going to be continuously discoverable and helpful for a long time. Yeah, I feel like I'm crushing your S3 buckets <laughs> with like my gigantic <laughs> gifts. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Uploading takes like 10 minutes. But yeah, I feel like Def2, like the community is just so amazing. And always in the comments, people are so kind and they ask really good questions. And I just love that. And especially when I see like younger coders like commenting on my articles, I'm like, yes, <laughs> I want to get those people more excited about tech. It's, it's so fun. I love it. <laughs> and Kevin, can you tell us about your Code Analogies blog and what inspired its creation? Yeah, so I was really inspired just by my own experience trying to learn on nights and weekends. And I'd say the biggest frustration for me is that whenever I would try to teach myself some topic online, this could be across, you know, some of the more popular course providers like Udemy and Code School, it felt like a really experienced developer was just firing facts at my brain, technical facts. And that was really hard for me to learn the subjects at hand. And I would kind of, you know, just try things over and over again until it worked. And then I got it, quote unquote. But what does getting it really mean? And Lydia just talked about that a little bit, you know, the, the conceptual side and what it means to understand something, what it means to visualize it. And after I'd been doing this for six months, I just started thinking about what is a better way to teach web development that isn't just firing facts at your brain. And another example I started seeing is that people would teach, if it's JavaScript or if it's CSS, they would teach all the topics in the exact same amount of time. So one topic, they would teach you for 10 minutes, the next topic, another 10 minutes. And some of these topics are much more complicated than others. And so I wanted to think about like how to focus more time and energy and more tutorials on those really tough ones, as opposed to leaving that to the individual viewer or user of your educational content to just hammer on their keyboard until they get it. I started writing a couple blog posts and I sat down for a while and tried to think of the best way to visualize it. And the first one I created was actually called JavaScript callbacks explained using minions, like little Pixar characters. (laughs) And the Pixar character thing was a happy accident. I mean, it didn't have to be related to an animated thing that everyone can enjoy. But the thing is like JavaScript callbacks are really hard to understand for first time web developers. And also the phrase minion resembles the term function, which you're used to seeing in JavaScript. And so I was able to kind of like interchange those two words and then turn it into a fun visualization where as you're reading the code, you know, a minion jump, imagine a minion jumping out of the screen and kind of like executing the code within that block. And that was a hit at first. I, I posted that on Medium in the free code camp publication and it had such a strong response that I figured there had to be more there. You know, it, it, it's not just because there are Pixar characters in this blog post. There's a real approach here that could be used across other topics in web development. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think both of your works on visualization have really reached a lot of people and benefited a lot of people. Lydia, do you remember your first visualization? It was on the HTML parser. <laughs> So I was just thinking, like, I was on the plane, I think I was heading to Florida, and I was like, wait a second, so what actually happens when, like, you know, like, you request the HTML file from your server, how does it actually get displayed on your computer? 
And for some reason, I just started researching it a lot and making a little keynote with like all those like little parsers like going around and those notes that get created. Yeah, that's when I was like, this is so useful just to kind of see everything actually like flowing around and working. And yeah, that that was my first one. It was HTML parser. Not very exciting. (laughs) I think that's pretty exciting because I think it needs to be visualized. Anything I am ever told about parsing at all it seems sometimes like a block of text unless you can see it unless it it can be visualized and also i think like people think it's boring but it's just it's so important because we use it every single day and i'll all like for don't take anything for granted like it's fun to actually understand the tools that we're using on a daily basis it is just so cool that what technology is doing right now that we're just like yeah but it's 2020 of course it's doing that like no just kind of take a step back and see what we've actually already like achieved so far and i think like visualizing it is a great way of kind of putting everything in perspective Kevin, can you give us a little bit of insight into what the most all-time popular analogies you've made and what kind of hit with each one? Yeah, sure. So I tend to focus on more, I'd say, beginner web development topics. And there's two reasons for that. Uh, One, I would consider myself a beginner web developer in general. So it's the topics that I know well. And the second is that people tend to need these analogies and visualizations a little bit more when you're earlier on the learning curve. Obviously, everyone has a friend or you might be in this situation yourself where after you've learned one or two programming languages, it's much easier to pick up the third or fourth. So I tend to focus on topics for people that are on their first programming language. And, you know, things tend to be at the beginning of that experience. CSS positioning explained by building an ice cream sundae is probably the most popular one I've had. You may remember your own experience trying to learn CSS positioning the first time and just hammering on the keyboard, trying to figure out, you know, position relative versus position absolute. And when I learned there was no Flexbox or Grid or anything like that. So things like that, that seem to intuitively make no sense. I tried to use the ice cream sundae analogy to explain that. People seem to enjoy it. Another good one off the top of my head Uh, that got a lot of attention was model view controller explained by serving a drink at the bar. And the key for that is when you present the analogy that the drink that's being served, that's the view. It helps people understand that you're the way a person interacts with the view. Like you don't interact with the view that's presented. You interact with the waiter. You don't interact with the drink. So (laughs) I kind of use that experiential side that people probably understand. But if you presented them more technical facts on model view controller, they might struggle to understand those three things, especially if they've never learned SQL or any database stuff before. Do you have a process for landing on the analogy you want to make? Like, how's that go? That's a great question. I think one important thing is I try to make sure they're relevant for people around the world, just because if you're posting in Dev.2 or the free code camp publication on Medium, you can expect a big worldwide audience. And so the first thing I have to think about since I'm an American is like, take it easy on the American cultural references. Certainly American culture is around the world in some way. And if people have seen Hollywood movies, they might you know understand it even if they've never lived here, but not to make it so contextual to my own life or 
the, the experience of being an American. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is I'm definitely a perfectionist. So I will spend three days trying to think about a analogy and trying to think about, you know, what real world situation really fits whatever topic really well, they don't have to be continuous. So for example, if I do an explanation of closures in JavaScript and I do one about promises, they don't have to come from the same experience in the real world, you know, even though they're, they might be similar in JavaScript or, you know, used together frequently, you can take them from two very different angles. So I really focus on the individual concepts themselves. I think of them as independent topics and then I try to do the best job I can because there's no guarantee that people are reading multiple of my articles. So it doesn't make sense to string them together necessarily. But besides that, sometimes I'll write the attributes of the quote unquote system in programming. So if it's promises, you know, what defines the way that once you learn promises, your worldview will change and that you'll understand programming differently. And then I kind of like work backwards to what systems in the real world mirror that new system that just got created when you understood promises. So it's really on a case by case basis. And a lot of times things come back to either supply chain analogies or food service. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's because people understand those well, although most people don't have experience with supply chain or anything like that, but they can still intuitively get it. So I try to make sure that if I do go down that route, it actually fits the topic in front of me. I love how methodical you are with the process, um, especially the point on not being U.S. centric. I think that's really important and probably adds to how your analogies resonate with people. The fact that there is a method to it a bit feels really promising to me. Like I thought it was just like pop into your head, you know, like I've always really admired people who can come up with analogies. I'm like, how do you do it? So thanks for like a little bit of a framework there. Yeah, just the thing that pops into your head is always boxes within boxes. That's the lowest <laughs> common denominator of programming explanations. Because after you learn a topic, it can very much feel like that with as boxes and boxes. And then you have to really think deeply about what are the little details around that. And that's what gives it character. Lydia, what are some of your favorite or most popular visualizations that you've made? I think it was on the JavaScript engine and maybe async await as well. So also promises. It's just, I think, generally that the subjects that people find the most confusing. Yeah. Yeah, asynchronous programming in JavaScript, I think, has been the bane of web developers <laughs> for a long time just because there's multiple ways to do it. Or, you know, maybe we used to have the callbacks and we yeah. moved to some new things, but none of it was ever... These these have been the least intuitive things for me, I'm sure, and and... And both of you must have battled with this and really <laughs> seen that, yeah. that same situation. Yeah, it was fun because I let some people like Google Chrome proofread it to make sure that I got everything right. And they actually like discovered a bug in Google Chrome where it like, displayed a <laughs> wrong value. <laughs> so I was like, okay, perfect. That just shows how confusing it can be to use promises that even bugs like this actually hadn't been discovered yet. So that's fixed now. So that's something that my <laughs> article achieved as well. So that's fun. It feels really good also to kind of get the validation from the people that, you know, implement promises in browsers and actually be like, yeah, this is this is solid. Yeah, that's an incredible story. And like, what an awesome outcome. <laughs> so for our audience, can you actually paint us a picture of what some of your visualizations are like? So I kind of create a presentation where I try to show the actual components, 
Okay, so I use Keynote <laughs> to, to start with. <laughs> Many people ask this, what are you using for your visualizations? Keynote. Yeah, so I use these kind of boxes and arrows <laughs> to like show when stuff is happening where, but I really try to show it in kind of the best way possible. So I use code and yeah, oh, this is so difficult to explain. <laughs> I'm basically doing the opposite of what Kevin is doing. <laughs> <laughs> Because I kind of do it on a very technical level and I try to like not do it kind of the cartoon way. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that like we're covering all the kind of audiences here because everyone learns in a totally different way. But yeah, I just try to explain it on like a code level, kind of under the hood, like what's actually happening when you're using this. That was the worst explanation of my visualizations ever. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I feel like your visualizations are fairly you've got to see them to really understand how well they're executed. That really stands out to me. They're, they're really like crafted well. And, and with you talking about even allowing Chrome to proofread it, that's a degree of perfection on the process that's really outstanding. <laughs> Do you think that there are any coding concepts that are too complicated to turn into a visualization? I think the most difficult thing is to understand the different parts of a certain concept. Like what is still like in this area and what should be a totally different blog post. But no, I don't think that anything is too uh, difficult to visualize. I'm working on a really big one right now. And I want like say what, but um, yeah, that one would, could be too difficult, maybe. But we'll see. <laughs> Kevin, do you feel like there are any coding concepts that are too complicated or, or abstract to portray through an analogy? Yeah, so I really separate things into two separate buckets. There's the web development specific concepts, so things that are associated with higher level languages like JavaScript. So we've talked about some closures, promises, things like that. And then there's just the fundamental software engineering concepts like algorithms. And that's where I've found within the web development concepts, I've been pretty consistently being able to figure something out in a week. But on the algorithm side, I've still struggled with that. I really want to help people make those mental simulations of how an algorithm is working. It's actually a, a weak point in my own skill set. I know a lot more about web development concepts than I do about different algorithms. So it's me learning at the same time. But I don't think that's the impediment here. I don't think that's the, the issue. I think it's just fundamentally difficult to visualize without just shapes. And I'm trying to do something really involved and you know, give a really good level of detail with algorithms. And I've tried a couple posts. I have an email list. So I send every new post out to my email list. And the algorithms ones never get a strong response. And even though people uh, ask for it up front, and I, you know, even when I finish the post, I feel a little more questionable about it than I do compared to the web development ones. So that's still one I want to crack. Kevin, you spoke to sort of having to think about a more global audience and how your analogies can't be culturally centric in a, in any way, especially U.S. centric. Do you think about like what the process someone might be going through in terms of their learning process? Like the different scenarios where people will be seeking answers, mm -hmm. like are they in the middle of their project and they need to better understand something or are they just trying to get started with a, a new programming language and they are deliberately learning? Like where do you think your posts find people the best? I think I have a good answer for this based on the number of positive and negative responses I get from around the internet. <laughs> so far and away, all my positive responses mostly come from 
people that are teaching themselves independently like I did. So they're online nights and weekends or between jobs and they're teaching themselves or they're in a coding boot camp and they're at the very beginning of their journey. And I even have, you know, teachers from coding boot camps reach out to me and say, oh, this is great. I recommend it to all my students. So that always feels really good. In terms of negative responses, this is, does not characterize the entire group, but I would say college-educated web developers are the only people that give me negative responses. And again, that is definitely a very small portion of all college-educated web developers that even see my articles. Sometimes I've gotten comments like, why can't you just read the docs? Or why can't you just... You know, <laughs> that's the most common one. And I'll say, if reading the docs works for you, that's great. But there are a lot of people that it doesn't work for. So that's why I write these posts. Lydia, do you have a sense of when people tend to stumble across your posts in their process, whether it's, you know, while they're teaching themselves and they're being more conceptual or while they're like in the midst of a project? I've noticed that it's mainly people who are already quite experienced, but they still feel like kind of like the imposter syndrome, like they've been maybe coding for a long time, but like they're using these concepts on a daily basis without actually understanding it. It's kind of just like muscle memory. Like, you know that it works, but you don't know how it works. I'm getting a lot of these comments like, oh, so this is actually how it works. But it's also people that, you know, just got started and they just want to understand it better. So Kevin, earlier you mentioned when you're trying to come up with an analogy, you tend to look at the parts in front of you on the coding side and and like figure out those details and then you kind of go through a bunch of like potential analogies oftentimes ending up somewhere related to the supply chain mm -hmm. but if you were to give one piece of advice for someone who's trying to come up with an analogy what would it be my one biggest piece of advice would be make sure you fully understand the topic before you jump into analogies. And <laughs> it's honestly a separate activity in itself, because for me, I can get to a certain level of understanding where I can use it in a couple situations in code, and that works well enough for the moment. But then when I get to writing one of these analogy posts, I spend a fair bit of time, usually hours, like four to eight hours or however long, digging through different types of media, so written blog posts, videos, things that are going to pull my brain in different directions and try to show me if any of my understanding is wrong. And pretty much every time there is something that I didn't understand in enough depth to explain to other people. I think just like Lydia was saying before, there might be some insecurity on my part there where I'm like, I don't want to do this wrong. I don't want to be exposed on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so I... I feel you, yeah. Kevin. <laughs> so... I usually spend some time really understanding it and that it's like a systems thinking exercise. It's not even a programming exercise. It's like, what is the system? How does this, the, the system change when this new concept is introduced? And then how does that change my understanding? So that's probably the one biggest thing if other people want to do similar in-depth tutorials that are meant for people that, that actually need to learn this stuff. Can you explain what you mean by systems thinking? So... I'm a big fan of Douglas Hofstadter. He's a famous cognitive psychologist and kind of like a early thinker on artificial intelligence. And he's probably the main person I follow. And he's talked about the concept of expertise. Like, what does it mean to be an expert? And one of the big parts about being an expert is being able to run fast mental simulations. And this is what Lydia was also talking about when we talk about visualization, is how can we create a structure in someone else's brain where they can run a fast mental simulation because if the information is all over the place or people can't see the connections, 
they're going to struggle to connect the dots. And so it's up to us as educators to connect those dots for them and make really strong explanations that make that easy. And so when I say systems thinking, what I really mean is like how to create a structure of information that'll be easily mapped into someone else's brain. And in order to do that, you have to really focus on the way that the parts work together and usually the way that they connect to something that people already understand. It could be just something as low level as shapes and movement, as Lydia does in a lot of her explanations. People understand that intuitively very well, and that's a big help. And then for me, sometimes I'll get into you know higher level concepts like do they understand this real world system and can they use that to map this new programming concept into their brain? So that's my idea of systems thinking and how it connects to whether someone's an expert or not. If someone out there is looking to go for maximum helpfulness on the internet, as both you two have, what advice would you start them off with? Create the content that you feel is missing. That is, I think, the main tip that I would give to everyone. For me, I think a lot about a concept called the curse of knowledge. And what that means is once you become so experienced at a certain thing or you get to that level of expertise, it's very hard to get back into a beginner's mindset and understand where a beginner is coming from because your your mental structures are already so complicated and so well-formulated in your brain that it's hard to get it onto paper or onto a screen. And so for me, the way I solve for that is I try to teach topics directly after I learn them because I'm still in that beginner's mindset. And I can just try to think about what was difficult for me to learn and then just point the article that way. So that's probably what my one biggest piece of advice on, you know, what's a good time to write an article or, you know, what should you think about teaching first? I love that. Kevin, you mentioned earlier that uh, like CS degree holders, you know, we'll just say go read the docs and that your posts and, and analogies tend to resonate with people who are in boot camps. Do you think that there's a shift in how how we need to be teaching coding or do you feel like what you're doing is more of like an outlier? I think that the way people are projecting into the future a lot when they think about how many jobs are going to be lost to automation or you know how many jobs will need to be shuffled around, perhaps more accurately, as other jobs are automated and brought online, and then how many developers will need to train in order to meet that demand. That I definitely strongly believe in, that there's going to be some job shuffling due to automation. And I think the way that programming is currently taught works for a small subset of the population. In other words, even if you could admit more people to computer science programs in universities around the around the world, your limiting factor, you, you'd soon run into it with just the number of people that are capable of learning with the current methods. I'd consider myself one of those people that is not capable of learning with the current methods. That's why I made the tutorials mm-hmm. that I did. And so I kind of think of it that way. I still think it's good to have that you know, some sort of classroom structure and some sort of structure there, be it like an online school. But whatever structure you choose, I think the actual content of learning has a long way to go from what I've seen. Because when you have the college mindset, you know you're in for it for four years. It's in a very uh, well-defined part of your life. You know you're ready to hunker down and work on that. But if you think about retraining someone or someone picking up a new job within the same company it's harder for them to allot that amount of time. And that's where I think that the current education methods break down because people need to fit this into different size chunks. 
and actually get somewhere. Lydia, what do you think about the future of teaching coding? So like I'm, I'm 22 myself and I often see like kind of a younger Gen Z group. Their attention span is so short. And I feel like a lot of these coding concepts, they really require a lot of attention. Like you need to be focused for so long to really understand what's going on. And I want to make it more accessible to especially Gen Z and the younger people that are, you know, excited about tech, but simply can't focus enough. So I definitely think that like the educational resources should focus more on keeping people like happy and and focused with maybe like animations and kind of keeping them constantly like back on track and like this is what we're talking about you don't have to read this entire paper to understand what's going on i think that's very important to focus more on younger people and what they're used to <laughs> Now we're going to move into a segment where we look at responses that you, the audience, have sent us to a question we made in relation to this episode. The question we asked was, what is an analogy or visualization of a coding concept that really helped you understand it better? Our first response is a message we got on our Google Voice from Emily. I was learning C recently and confused about the concept of pointers and what their point, forgive the pun, even was. Someone on Stack Overflow described it as giving someone a copy of your house as a variable instead of just giving them just your address as a pointer. Really helped. I'm personally not very familiar with C or pointers, but I do think one interesting thing that was mentioned there was the real estate or like urban planning analogy using real world (laughs) space to show this. And obviously the address is a form of a reference to a real world space, in this case, a house. But you can see how, you know, people's brains are quickly grasping onto things that are spatial as opposed to more esoteric things. Yeah, I've never written in C, and this makes me feel like I understand what they're actually trying to describe. Yeah, I, I remember one once with JavaScript with uh, by reference versus by value. And I still remember that was this one tweet, and they explained it with like a coffee cup, which is, I think, kind of the same like Emily described here. And I still think of that every single time I have to think about, is this passed by reference or by value? So yeah, stuff like this definitely sticks like forever. <laughs> I have a distinct memory in taking some computer science classes. And the only thing anyone would tell me about pointers was like, you know, boxes of bits and stuff, and no one would ever use analogies. And I, I, it took me forever to understand what a pointer was. And these days, I would 100% explain it with an analogy if, if I was ever trying to explain it to someone. And I can't believe how unwilling some educators are to just explain the thing they're trying to explain. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry L. writes, one thing that really helped me understand Optional unwrapping in iOS was the box analogy, particularly Schrodinger's cat. At runtime, you don't know what value an optional property will hold, whether it's nil or contains a value, until you actually call it. And you can either do it safely by nil checking first or implicitly unwrapping it and hoping it doesn't blow up in your face. Can anyone explain Schrodinger's cat? Actually, while Ben was talking, I was just looking it up on Google. So no. (laughs) It's like, you don't know if it exists or doesn't exist, right? Like it both exists and doesn't exist at the same time. That's, or am I thinking of something else? All right. Let me give a, give an attempt from memory to describe what yes. Schrodinger's cat was all about. Give so, an analogy. 
Well, so I, I think it's important to know that Schrodinger was trying to be absurd when he created this uh, idea and not really trying to make the right point, but trying to kind of point out the absurdity of some other concepts. And the Schrodinger's cat analogy originated with the idea that some quantum physicists were claiming that observing the state of quantum physics was uh, changing their behavior and therefore certain, you know, things couldn't exist without observing it. So Schrodinger's cat was a hypothetical experiment where a cat was placed in a box with a radioactive, with a quantum radioactive material that would be slowly released. And the notion was that the cat was both alive and dead because the material would be releasing, but only if you observed it. So until you observe it, it's not anything. There's like no state at all. But as soon as you observe it, it will have been dead, but it won't be dead until you observed it. So I think it's a purposefully convoluted experiment and and concept. So it's maybe not the best analogy for everyone because it itself needs a lot of of explanation (laughs) and backstory. But (laughs) I was going to say, I'm like more confused now than I was before, but okay. (laughs) Well, Harry wrote in saying that plumbing is an analogy that applies in more than one ways. Um, A few of the examples they gave was modular applications is like many plumbing components coming together. Performance bottlenecks is like something stuck in a pipe. The same ideas apply to debugging and fixing them. Monitoring and instrumentation can be seen as the water meter. And queuing you can think of as first in, first out, or back pressure. And yeah, that list goes on. I think that's a really good analogy of turning bits and bytes and things that are sent over the internet and feel invisible into something physical, which is water. And then as soon as you make that transformation, then the plumbing analogy makes a lot of sense. And it allows people to kind of like visualize the bits and bytes that they might be sending otherwise uh, between different services. So I like that one. Yeah, it's interesting how like bits and bytes are, you know, kind of invisible to us too as developers um, in the same way that plumbing is kind of invisible to us in like our day-to-day lives unless like an issue pops up with it. Yeah, when I think about like the very last piece of the plumbing and in a web development perspective, I think of, you know, how the uh, DOM tree is created or or how the the HTML is rendered, speaking to um, some of the visualizations Lydia has created. And when I think in terms of plumbing, I think that's maybe like the way your basement fills up with water if pipes burst. <laughs> it's not not everything's going to get wet at once. But you know, maybe before you know it, your basement's going to be full of water. But uh, how that process develops is kind of like building the HTML out. It could just be a bucket filling with water. It doesn't have to be damaged to your property, does it? <laughs> <laughs> Felipe writes in to say the box model is an awesome analogy a long time ago when I was learning CSS. Thinking of a div like a box really helped me. Thank you for bringing this up, Felipe, because I already went on a rant about boxes and boxes. So this is a great time (laughs) to bring it back up. I've done a box model. The box model, you know, phrasing that it that way is definitely a good start. And I still remember when I was learning it initially, it took me a little longer than I would have hoped to understand it with margin and padding specifically because you know now those seem so obvious and it's obvious why you would want two separate properties there but at the start it it wasn't nearly as obvious 
And I remember people trying to explain it to me with box and boxes. And the way I transformed that was into like a, to go back to the real estate analogy, like a more suburban plot of land where you have like the house, which is the content itself. You have the grass, which is the padding around it. And then you have like the woods or like, you know, kind of land that hasn't been used for anything specific in between properties. And that's like the margin. So that's one way I've tried to turn the box model into something that people have experienced. You know, if you've been to a suburban neighborhood anywhere, basically you can visualize those three parts. A box model visualization that helped me was Kelly Vaughn, who's a guest on another episode, posted a picture on Twitter of herself sitting in a box while she was moving houses. And she just kind of annotated the portions of this picture, which were going to be padding margin in the box. And it was just her sitting in a box, but I felt like it was really a nice, succinct explanation that really helped me. Lydia and Kevin, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Jess and Ben. I want to thank everyone who sent in responses. For all of you listening, please be on the lookout for our next question. We'd especially love it if you would dial into our Google Voice. The number is international code 1-929-500-1513. Or you can email us a voice memo so we can hear your responses in your own beautiful voices. This show is produced and mixed by Levi Sharp. Editorial oversight by Peter Frank and Saran Yabarik. Our theme song is by Slow Biz. If you have any questions or comments, please email pod at dev.to. And make sure to join our DevDiscuss Twitter chats on Tuesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. Or if you want to start your own discussion, write a post on Dev using the hashtag Discuss. Please rate and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts.